Well, as we conclude the series, Dear Church, I want to begin with a question. And that question is this. What would you say is the worst thing that can happen to a church? What's the worst thing that could happen? Would it be that, uh, that a church would, would no longer have active ministries? That wouldn't be good, would it? Uh, might it be that a church uh, not have strong finances? Of course, that wouldn't be very good. Uh, a lack of a building or a lack of, of space to meet? Uh, what, about, what about the lack of a pastor? Would that be the worst thing? No? Well, it would be for me. I appreciate that sentiment because it's like for the pastor, that would be a bad thing, right? But that's not the worst thing either. I think the worst thing that could happen to a church is to feel like it needs nothing, that it is completely self-sufficient. Isn't that a danger? A danger that we could, we could gather together and somehow in a warped way of thinking, believe that we've got it all figured out, that we've got all that we need, that this, this self-sufficiency could breed the idea that really we don't have a dependency upon the Lord. Today, we're going to be looking at the church of Laodicea, and that's exactly the situation they were in. They had this feeling of self-sufficiency, self, being self-reliant, and it caused them to no longer look to the Lord. And in the chap, uh, chapter 3 of Revelation, we will be picking back up in verse 14. And over the last six weeks, we've been looking at, at the opening chapters of Revelation, and we have considered these seven specific churches. They were in seven towns that, uh, that, that, that had churches in, in, the, uh, in the days of the early church. They, uh, they are uh, actual letters that were written to these churches, but preserved, and even they say that they are given for others to read for others to heed and to consider. And I think the church letter to Laodicea has words for us today. I believe there will be some benefit for us. Over the last number of weeks, we've seen different churches. One was very strong in theology, but it was weak in compassion and in caring for others. There was another church that was very, very strong in caring for others and exhibited lots of compassion, but they were very weak on upholding the truth of God's word. We saw a church that battled pride and arrogance a couple of weeks ago, and they, uh, they had a good reputation, a good standing in the community, but do you remember what Jesus said about them? He said inside they were dying, dying spiritually. Last week, we considered a church that they thought they were too small, that they were too weak, but, but the Lord gave them a word and said they had opportunities, and we said that if... if uh, that little is much when God is in it. It's not a matter of our strength or, or, or our abilities. It's, it's what he can do through these opportunities. But to wrap up the series, we look at what might be the most famous of the seven churches, the church of Laodicea. The church is known, it has a reputation of being what? You remember? The lukewarm church. And uh, oftentimes we hear that word and we think, well, it's probably referencing their spiritual temperature, whether or not they are, they are on fire for God. And, and really that's not the point that Jesus is making. That's not the lesson that he has for the church in Laodicea. And we're going to spend some time on that in just a moment. But before we get there, let's consider the uh, town of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. It begins by saying, right 
to the angel of the church in Laodicea. And we've seen that each letter has been addressed this way. And it reminds us that, that in, in God's providence, he has, he has provided angels or messengers that are, that are uh, affiliated with, with each local congregation. And through this vision, this revelation that, that the Apostle John has given, we have these letters and, uh, and they come from the Lord. And so this particular church is in Laodicea. We want to think about the city. It is a, uh, a rather self-sufficient city. And uh, we want to think about the ministry context. I, I think that what has happened in the city of Laodicea gives us more insight into the letter that Jesus gave them than maybe any of the other churches. It's, it's really important that we understand the context of this city so that we can then understand with greater clarity what the letter meant when it was first written. And so in the town of Laodicea, again, it's, it's in this region of uh, Phrygia. In fact, it was the chief city of this region in the Lycus Valley. It had uh, three major roads that came across it. If you look at the map, you're, you're actually looking again at modern-day Turkey, where each of the seven churches uh, were located. But it was a highly commercial city. It was a wealthy city. In fact, I thought it was interesting. I, I came across a news site called the Turkish Archaeological News. And it's, it's not a Christian site, but this was their way of describing what it was like in ancient Laodicea. And I want us to, to note this so that we can make connections to what we're going to see in a few minutes as we continue reading the letter. You'll notice I highlighted that they were famous for three things. Black wool. It was a very unique and costly wool that was black, and they could make garments from it, and they could export this all over the world. They were also known for banking services, which may seem a little strange when you think about ancient, uh, ancient times, but indeed they did have uh, currency. They did have uh, opportunities to, to, uh, to have commerce, and so this was a town that, that flourished with, the, uh, with financing. Also, they were known, it says, number three there, medical Achievement and in their case, they uh, uh, they made a an eye salve that could be placed over people's eyes that had whether it was infections or disease. And this eye salve was 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 quite potent and it was it was uh, it was very helpful in curing the disease. And so they were known for these three things: all three industries, finance. Uh, uh, wool, as well as the medical achievement. And so they had lots of resources. In fact, uh, they, uh, they had one of the largest shopping areas. Uh, the Greeks used to call this the agora, the marketplace. And uh, if you look at the next picture, you see that this is probably their main street. And you can just envision it lined with shops and lots of activity, lots of people, lots of commerce, even on the street itself. They also uh, uh, put together a temple to false Roman gods or Greek gods and goddesses. And uh, you can see the temple there. But it also uniquely had a stadium, a stadium that was about 300 yards long. It was massive. And if you, as you look at the picture now, it just looks like a grassy hill with, with rocks in it. But try to envision, you know, the seating for this massive stadium where they had all kinds of athletic competitions including Roman gladiators that were here. So, I mean, it was, it was a well-known stadium. And so this city had a lot going for it. And in fact, in the year of 60 AD, it suffered a massive earthquake. 
And so a lot of damage was done. And because it was a, a capital a city or a chief city of this region, they would have had opportunity to make a loan with Rome from the empire, Roman empire, to, to rebuild, but they didn't need it. They had plenty of resources. And so they rebuilt their city and they, they, they took pride in the fact that they could do it on their own. That was 60 AD. That would have happened before they received this letter from John. And so I mentioned that because they were known to be a self-sufficient city. And some of that, while it may be admirable in a civic setting, might be difficult in a church setting, right? If you think about this idea of self-sufficiency in the house of God, how that might create some challenges for them. But the town did have one inadequacy, and that is they didn't have a good water supply. Uh, they didn't have springs that they could, that they could uh, draw water from. And so they had to have an aqueduct bring their water in from four miles. And so this next picture, the water didn't flow through those. It's a little deceiving. Actually, it just sustained the pipe. It was the structure that, that kept that four-mile pipe. And if you can imagine water traveling in the, in the hot sun of that part of the world for four miles, wouldn't you love to just put your cup at the very end of that pipe, right? That's, that's what they had. It was not ideal. It was, it was the one flaw that the, that the city had. But the nearby town of Colossae, it had cold spring water. In fact, I told you all that, that many years ago, our family had the opportunity to be in that area, and we went to, to many of these sites. And I can remember being in, in Colossae and hearing about the, the, the cold water, the springs that they had uh, there. But then looking off in the distance, and I, I told Karen, I said, look at that. that. That hill over there looks like it's covered with snow. And, and this is what I was looking at. But I thought it didn't make any sense that it would be covered with snow because it was too warm. And the other hills didn't have snow. And, and I had no idea what we were looking at. But we were going there, and so we eventually got to the, the ancient town of Hierapolis, and in Hierapolis, they have hot springs. And in fact, even today, if you go to the top of, of, the, of the mountain there, of the hill, uh, they have these pools of hot springs that you can wade in and that you can sit in. Very therapeutic, naturally hot, coming right out of the ground, but also filled with lots of minerals. And as the, as the water comes up and it creates these pools and then it overflows, the minerals collect and they, uh, these mineral deposits um, that you see that look like snow from a distance are actually travertine. So maybe you've, you've worked with travertine or you have some travertine in your home. This is, this is the, the mineral that produces that. And so I, I tell you all of this to say, when we think about the lukewarm water of Laodicea, they were not a town that had a good water supply. And so there's these images of what did Hierapolis have with its therapeutic water? What did Colossae have with its refreshing cold water? Well, the town of Laodicea had neither one. And Jesus would use that as a picture of their spiritual condition. Well, as we think about the city of Laodicea, we also need to think about uh, they are the recipients of the letter. We also need to think about the author of the letter. And the latter part of verse 14 describes him, Jesus, as this. Thus says the Amen, the capital A, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. This tells us about the Lord. And he is truly self sufficient. 
And so the contrast between what the city thought about itself and who God truly is as the self-existent one, the true self-sufficient one. Well, let's look at these titles, the Amen. Now, that, that's an interesting title. I don't know if we've ever referenced Jesus as the Amen, but this is a title that he's taking upon himself. And this is a word that, that uh, emphasizes that which is valid or true or important. We even say that ourselves. We say amen to something. We agree with it. We, we say that's important. That is true. And, and he is the one that is the amen. And thinking about he is the one that is stating what is true about our heavenly father. And in fact, this word also speaks about the idea of finality and completion. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, there's a parallel verse, I think, for what we're reading in Revelation. It says this. It's, it's relating the promises of God to who Jesus is. And notice that the word amen is in there as well. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Speaking of Jesus. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. And so this title, Amen, is referencing the fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises, that, that they come through him. And in the, the, and in the next part of Revelation 3.14, he uses a title, Faithful and True Witness. And this, this corresponds with the promise. It's as, if, it's as if he is not only the originator of this promise, he is the amen, but he's also the one that's making sure it's faithfully being completed, like the witness to a contract saying, yes, this is valid, this is, this is, in, this is enforceable. He is saying, yes, I am the witness to the promises of God. And he can also fulfill them because of, the fact of who he is, the nature of Christ as the creator. In fact, uh, the, the idea here is he is the originator of God's creation. It reminds me of the Christ hymn found in Colossians chapter 1 that speaks of, of all things being made by him, all things being sustained by him. He is the source. He is the sustainer. He is the ruler over all creation. That's the Lord of our church. He is in charge of it all. And so when, when, the, when the people of, of Laodicea thought they were sufficient, they were good on their own, they were, they were, in essence, rejecting what all the Lord could provide. And so he opens the letter with a very strong word about his identity and about his strength and his sufficiency. Well, let's keep reading. Let's see what else he has to say to them. Let's pick back up. In verse 15, he says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. Very graphic description there. Divine nausea is really what we're reading about here. Verse 17, for you say I'm rich and I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. 
Let's think for a moment about the condition of the church. Jesus gave some words here to describe a lukewarm church. And again, thinking about this idea of being lukewarm, he, he, he knows they understand very well their water situation. They knew what lukewarm water was. They knew what wasn't tasty and what they would spit out if it wasn't, if it wasn't good to drink. And he knew that they realized they were not Colossae with the cold spring water that provided life. Nor were they Hierapolis that had this warm therapeutic waters that would heal. They weren't either one of those. They were lukewarm. And he brings that metaphor forward and says, that is what you're like spiritually, spiritually. And so he's, again, not not talking about spiritual excitement about being fired up for God. Sometimes we read it that way. In our context, that's what we think of. But in their context, that's not what it was. He was simply telling them that they were of no practical use. You see, the hot water had a practical use. The cold water had a practical use. But the lukewarm water, no, not at all. You say, well, how could they not be practically useful in the kingdom? How could this church not be useful to God? Why is that the case? It was their attitude of self-sufficiency. And that's a a danger. It's a danger for a church. Quite honestly, it can be a danger for an individual, can't it? Who needs God? We've got this figured out. We've got what we need. We've We've got more than we need. We've got an excess. We'll just live on that. We don't need his provision. His wisdom, we don't need that either. We're advanced, we're modern, we're, we're, we're technologically savvy. Who needs him, right? That can be the trap of self-sufficiency. And again, it, it seems to, to be a, uh, a description of even the day in which we live. If you look again at verse 17, you'll see it come through. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. Interesting. They, uh, if you go on, he says, and you don't even realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They're in this condition that they're not even aware of. They don't know the situation they're in. Look at some of the words. Speaking about I'm rich, I have become wealthy. It's talking about the, the abundance of material blessings. And they were taking pride in what they had. In fact, they were trusting in their wealth as if it could give them ultimate security. In fact, there's three words there at the very end of that statement. I have become wealthy and need nothing. That right there is the statement of self-sufficiency. I don't need it. I need nothing. Remember how we earlier saw the city rebuild itself after the earthquake, didn't need the financial assistance from Rome. They were proud of that. Could it be that that same civic thinking found its way into the church where they were just so used to operating that way that they didn't think they needed the Roman Empire? And the Christians are thinking now, we don't need the Lord. Now, of course, they might not have said that, right? They would have verbalized that, but they were living in such a way where they were no longer looking for him to provide. They were no longer looking for his wisdom to guide them. They were no longer looking for his spirit to empower them. Let me ask you, church family, could that be a danger for today? 
Could we, could we just try to operate out of our own ingenuity, out of our own strength, out of our own wisdom, and, and in essence tell the Lord, we don't need you. We got this. And when we do so, we're being foolish, right? Because how can we really minister? How can we really impact a community? How can we see hearts and minds changed for the sake of the gospel if the Spirit isn't at work? And so this is a reminder for us to not try to to run out ahead of God or to do things uh, in our own power and wisdom. This is the danger of self-sufficiency. Juan Sanchez, in his book on these seven churches, said it this way, the greatest danger facing the church today is not government legislation. It's not outright religious persecution. It's not even false teachers or bad doctrine. It's a prosperity that deceives us into self-sufficiency. So we, too, need to be aware. It's not saying that that these material possessions are evil. I mean, in many cases, we, we recognize them as blessings from the Lord. But what happens if we allow them to be the focus? They become idols. Rather than the worshiping of God, we see the worshiping of of these things. And so for us in the culture, in the country that we live in, we need to be aware that this could also be something that could infect the churches of America. And yet they were even blind. There's another, right there in the middle of verse 17, three more words I want to point out. You don't realize. Didn't they kind of jump out at you? They had no idea. They, they thought everything was good, they were, they were, that all was well. And he's saying, you're blind. You're really poor, speaking of them spiritually. And they don't even know it. Do you remember the situation that you were in when you realized you needed Christ as Savior? When you came to the end of yourself? When you realized that the, that the things of this world couldn't, couldn't fill, fill the emptiness of the soul? See, they hadn't gotten there yet. They were still in the process of trying to fill that emptiness with other things. And he's saying, you don't even realize your spiritual poverty. You're bankrupt. Well, here we are looking at, at, uh, at the, the words poor, pli- blind, and naked. And I want to I ask you, do, do those three words, do they connect to the city of Laodicea in a very, a very, uh, uh, metaphorical way. I mean, when you think about, about the, the idea of them being known as uh, being in a, in, in, in spirit, in, in, a, in a world in which they had uh, financial uh, wealth, in which they, they, were, they were at the forefront of this financial industry, and yet they're poor spiritually. And the idea that, that they created an ISAV that was, that was exported so that people could be healed of physical uh, illness with their physical sight, and yet spiritually, what does Jesus say about them? They're blind. And here they, they have exported this expensive black wool and the garments that could be produced. But what is it that Jesus tells them? They're naked. They're not what they thought they were. They're not what they thought they were. And he used language that would resonate with them. But even after this assessment, we're going to see that they were not without hope. 
This wasn't the end for the church of Laodicea. In fact, when we pick back up and read verses 18 and 19, we're going to see that there is hope for them. And there's hope for us today. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. He says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed, and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The church, the only hope for the church would be found in these words. It's the church's only hope. What a story of God's grace, of his mercy. He, he could have just ignored them, right? Or he could have just let their church completely die. And, and, and he could have done that. But that's not the heart of our Savior. The heart of our Savior is to renew The gospel is to restore. It's to take the the brokenness that we experience and the foolishness that we allow ourselves to be caught up in and to have it brought back, brought back to the Lord to instead experience the healing, to experience what only he can provide. So they have an invitation to come to him, but they have to come to God on his terms. And his terms are this. Grace is a gift. They're coming out of a society, out of a city, that would be very used to just earning their own way, paying their own way, right? And so they might have taken that same approach with God in thinking that they had to deserve it or that they had to earn it. But to come to him on his terms means that we humble ourselves. Say, God, I can't do it. I need what you have done. I need what Christ has done on the cross. And to humble myself enough to repent of my sin and receive the gift of eternal life. That can be hard for proud people who are used to doing things their own way, can't it? Oh, come on. Let's not act like that's a new thought for any of us, right? (laughs) Look at where we live. Look at the area. Look at the, the country that we're blessed with. If we're not careful, we can translate those same thoughts into our walk with God and not think that we're dependent upon him when actually we are. We're poor, we're blind, and we're naked. And we need what only he can provide. That's the message to the church of Laodicea. And that's the message to us. And in that, there is good news because I will say, aren't you glad that we don't have to earn it? Aren't you glad that we don't have to buy it? That in his providence, he has given us eternal life through his son, Jesus Christ, who has done all that needs to be done by laying down his life for our sins. In fact, on this Holy Week, we think about that, don't we? We think about where he was on Palm Sunday. We think about how this week unfolds until where on Thursday, as we gather back for the dinner, we'll think about where he was. On Friday, we'll think about the cross, the crucifixion, the death, the burial. And then next week, we'll get back together. And what will we be thinking about? Resurrection. The resurrected Christ. You see, he has done it. And this church needed to only take what he has given and to stop trying to do it all on their own. 
in his commentary on this passage, Richard Mayhew said, there could be only one thing worse for the Laodiceans than the stinging rebuke of this letter. This letter is evidence of Christ's love for the church and his desire for it to be restored. To reprove and discipline is to love. To ignore is to hate. So Jesus came and he gave them an opportunity. They needed the, the, the pure spiritual gold of salvation that Christ would give. They needed not the black wool of physical clothes. They needed to be wrapped in the white garments. And this is a theme that continues throughout the book of Revelation. The white garments, that's the forgiveness that we are clothed in, that Jesus Christ has provided. He clothes us in what he has provided. And that when God looks at us, he sees us in these white garments that represent forgiveness. They represent Christ. And rather than physical ISAV, they needed the Lord to give them the ability to see spiritually so that they could assess and understand the condition that they're in and trust in him. So in verse 10, Jesus called on the church to repent. In fact, if, if you look at it there, um, excuse me, verse 19. So be zealous and repent. You might say, well, what do they need to repent of? What sin specifically do they need to repent of? And what's the answer? The sin of self-sufficiency. That's what it's all about. And he's calling them to repent of that sin. And in doing so, they would be recognizing that they were dependent upon Christ. And in doing so, they would be inviting him back into the midst of their church, which really helps us understand what verse 20 means. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on the throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. We've looked at similar verses. I won't go into the details on this. Every letter ends with the idea of being an overcomer, being victorious in Christ. We've already looked at the essence of, of even being uh, with Christ and with his work of judgment in the end, the end of times. But then verse 22, let anyone who has ears to hear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. We looked at this verse in week one of our series because it's important that we, that we listen, that we pay attention to what Christ is saying to these seven churches because they were preserved and meant for us today. Yes, as the fellowship of Wildwood, as individuals to hear. But this verse 20 is the one that I want to think about now. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. And I want to point out that this verse is written to a church, a local church, not an individual. And it's not a verse that's talking about salvation. It's talking about fellowship with God. It's talking about recognition of dependency of Christ for the church. There was a famous painting that Holman Hunt painted uh, just a, a conception of what this verse uh, meant to him, and it's hanging in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. It's a picture of, of Christ standing by a closed door, 
And it's interesting because there's vines clinging to the door as if it hadn't been opened in a long time. The hinges are rusty. And yet there's the Lord knocking on the door, holding in his other hand a lamp, signifying that he's the light of the world. He would bring light into the room. There's no knob on the outside of the door because it must be open from the inside. That's, again, the picture for the church to consider whether or not we take the mindset, I've got this, or we need him. In fact, we are utterly dependent upon him for anything and everything that we're about. That's, that's really the, the question. Well, this particular painting in St. Paul's Cathedral, there's a story that a father and, and daughter were, were there. And they were looking at the painting. They were looking through all of the imagery of it and thinking about the significance of it. And the little girl asked her dad, she said, Daddy, did he ever get in? Did he ever get in? Isn't that a good question for us to ponder today? Did he get in? Is he in? Is he here? Do we, do we need to be reminded today of our dependence upon the Lord? I mean, after all, this is his church. He's the Lord of the church. He's the head of the church. And aren't we glad of it? It's his spirit that does the work. And we are the ones that are able to receive the blessings of all that he will provide for us. But there is a message there. And that is for us to not try to do it on our own. To not try to usurp the work of the spirit, the work of the Lord within us. But to continually humble ourselves. And recognize that without him, what are we? Poor, we're blind, we're naked. We need him. But thankfully, thankfully, he wants to come. He wants to come in and be with us. In fact, this verse, verse 20, is a, is a picture of a meal. I will come to him, eat with him, he with me. Christ wants to provide. And throughout the book of Revelation, we are reminded of a meal. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We think about in the end of times what it will be like to be in that heavenly banquet. But today I'd like for us to think of another meal, to think of the meal of the Lord's table, the time in which we can receive these elements. And whereas the marriage supper of the Lamb causes us to look forward, the Lord's table causes us to look backwards to look back to a time and remember what it was that Jesus did when he went to the cross. And so today we are going to receive the Lord's Supper together. We are going to be thinking together of what it was that Jesus, as the Lamb of God, laid down his life. The bread, of course, symbolizing for us his body and the cup symbolizing his blood. As we come to this, we want to do so in a manner that is, that is worthy, meaning that we reflect properly about the significance. And so I invite you to come to receive these elements. You do not have to be a member of the church, but we do ask that you be a professing follower of Jesus Christ. This is a meal meant for those who are Christians. It's a meal meant for us as a body to come together and remember with thankful hearts what he has done. But it also gives us an opportunity 
to confess our sin before the Lord. Maybe for some of us, we need to pray prayers of God forgiving us of the spirit of self-sufficiency. Or maybe there's other areas that we just have been holding on to and we've not given back to the Lord. Let's take some time. And I invite you to to pray personally these prayers of thanksgiving, prayers of confession. And then in just a moment, I'll pray a prayer of blessing over these elements, and then we will receive them together. So would you bow with me as we pray together?